Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Gradient Podcast, where we interview various people who research, build, use, or think about AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am your host, Daniel Bashir, and in this episode, I am very excited to be interviewing Sarah Hooker. Sarah is the head of Cohere for AI and a former research scientist at Google Brain. Sarah founded a Bay Area nonprofit called Delta Analytics, which works with other nonprofits and communities to build technical capacity. She is also one of the co-founders of the Trustworthy ML Initiative, an active participant of the ML Collective Research Group, and a host of the underrated ML podcast along with her brother. This was a really great conversation. And one thing I believe you'll notice as you listen is a couple places where I get overly pessimistic, in particular when we are talking about the MLPerf benchmark for looking at the performance of different types of hardware on machine learning models. And Sarah correctly calls me out on that for forgetting to recount why we got to the current paradigms that we have. I think there's a bit of a lesson to take away from this, that collectively and individually, we should continue to look forward and be really self-critical. At the same time, let's try not to forget all the work that it took us just to get to where we are. And for many of the sorts of problems we want to solve going into the future, we might not be in the most perfect place, but we do have a lot of great starting points. And I think that's a very important point to recognize. I will quit rambling on so that we can get onto the actual conversation, but I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I did recording it. I know, I know you host your own podcast, right? Underrated ML. So I was about to say, I have so much respect for people hosting a podcast because me and my brother, Sean Hooker, so we did it as a COVID, I would call this a hobby podcast. It's not as professional and set up as what you have going on here, but it was so much fun. And it was like, we, we just loved our whole premise was we wanted to talk about underrated ideas, um, but it was so much work <laughs> mm-hmm. and Sean took on most of it because he was doing all our formatting and stuff. So when he got a new job, I think he's enjoying London. And so we we just finished our season two, but oh, I don't wow. want to promise listeners anywhere when we'll be back for season three, because <laughs> I, think, I think Sean's enjoying his like break and his new job. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. It's definitely a little bit it's kind of a lot to manage, I think, with a full-time job as well. And whenever I talk to people about podcasting, I'm always very honest of like, this is totally not worth your time to do unless you're just really intrinsically excited about what the podcast is for. So I think for like me and Andre, we get a lot of intrinsic value out of this and a lot of great conversations. But I think if it weren't for that, I would just be like, this is totally not you know worth the time. I think that Um, We also did this with Skynet today, which is kind of another pet project. And I think that's very much the same way. We just find a lot of intrinsic value in the topics we end up discussing. And so even if, you know, you spend a couple hours preparing for an episode or a few hours editing it, which I'm always like, this is this is very tedious. And, you know, since we're kind of volunteer run, we don't have like a staff or anything on uh, on board to kind of do all that for us. It's just like me and Andre doing the whole thing. And so I think I think it's definitely one of those things where it's like you're, you're going to be putting in a lot of work for pretty low return. So you kind of have to force yourself to find something really interesting, intrinsic that you like about. It. I'm curious if that's sort of how like underrated ML felt for you. Yeah, it was just so much fun bringing in people whose work we love. So exactly the same. And I think another thing was that it was really fun for me and Sean because uh, so both our paths to machine learning have, I would say, been eccentric. Like we both grew up in Africa and like we didn't we didn't even know, you know, that the world of computer science existed. So the fact that we both somehow ended up super interested in machine learning 
it was just, it's really fun for us to also have that like common interest. Uh, so uh, yeah, I definitely, what's lovely about underrated ML is people still come up and ask about it and they'll, um, they'll still, they'll, they'll be like, oh, this is my favorite episode. So that's always really lovely. And I think that's the same for so much of this work, which is more community driven. And it's really has a lot of value in our community because there's so few ways in which people new to the field get to hear how people who are in the field think and how to place reference points around research. So I would say press on, your work is super valued. <laughs> And um, I think often like our feedback loops are not as uh, like, you know, every day, but uh, this stuff has a lot of merit. And I think things that build the community and make this knowledge accessible are super valuable. Yeah, absolutely. I think that even even like a small comment from somebody of, you know, oh, you know, maybe I, I didn't listen to the entire episode, but I really liked what you and your, your guest had to say. That's just super fulfilling for me. Let's actually use this as a bit of a segue. You mentioned your kind of non-traditional path into machine learning. Do you want to tell me a little bit about how that transpired? Yeah, so I I think a lot of my career has been just pursuing questions I'm really curious about. But originally, I was uh, really interested in economics. So I think partly because I grew up in Africa, my parents met in Sudan. So I grew up in Mozambique, Swaziland, Lesotho, Kenya, Liberia, they kept moving. Mm. <laughs> but like a lot of what I saw technically was economists. So I think I really aspired to be an economist for a lot of uh, growing up and even in my undergrad. So I got a scholarship to go to Minnesota. So when I um, arrived in the US, I was like, okay, I'm gonna train to be an economist. But after I graduated, I was working uh, in economic modeling and I was in the Bay Area and all of a sudden it was like this world had kind of opened up. So I was volunteering at the weekends and uh, I was volunteering with nonprofits but with other engineers. And so I think that was the turning point where I'm like, wow, there's so much more powerful tools to model the world than linear models, <laughs> which mm -hmm. are kind of like the favorite tool of economists. Um, and I think that it kind of hit me at the same time that it's just such an exciting time to do, uh, to be in this field, to be uh, in computer science, to be modeling the world around us. Because if you think about it, Modern computer science is only, you know, optimistically 70 years, but most of the progress in computer science has happened in the last 10, 12 years, which is so exciting. And also it, it was a huge driver for me in terms of why I became just, uh, I would call it like slightly obsessed. So at the time I was doing economics, but then I joined a startup and then I was teaching machine learning and then I joined brain. And now a lot of my work is how do we expand access to others of like getting into research? Cause I think it's so important. So, um, I think the one thing that stayed constant is I, I still feel like what drives me is what are important questions that I feel that you can make progress on. Um, but also where progress can translate to meaningful uh, impact in the real world. So a lot of my research agenda has kind of been focused around that. So if we're successful at answering this question, what is, will it, will it have an immediate impact? Mm -hmm. So those points you were laying out, what are the important questions here? If we make progress on those, does it have an impact? That's Something I think that a lot of researchers, regardless of their field, like to think about. And I'm curious about how those questions, when you were more focused on economics, were felt maybe a little bit different compared to what you think about now um, as, as more of an AI researcher. That's such a good question. So economics in many ways is about introducing enough assumptions to get the data distribution uh, into one way you can conceivably model it with a linear model. So mm -hmm. in many ways, the focus of the field has emphasized notions of interpretability. So uh, it's in stark contrast to deep neural networks where essentially you delegate representation to the model. And so you uh, actually 
there are some assumptions about what distribution is present. So I guess the, you know, we have these, uh, we essentially have these nonlinear uh, functions and at the very end, we have something like a, a, a linear layer where we're making some assumptions about the distribution. But for the most part, we kind of, uh, you know, hands up, we, we are going to let the model figure out how to represent the data. So it's a world apart. I think what's where the, there's connections is that a lot of economics is focused on uh, both certainty and uncertainty and uh, understanding what parts of the distribution we're uncertain about, statistical significance. And there I think it's we actually have lessons to learn from economics in machine learning because in machine learning, we've really favored probabilistic determinations of uncertainty. So what we do is we say, uh, okay, there's all these data points. Uh, we rank them by the probability, typically, or some other score of uncertainty, and we say these are the data points the model is uncertain about. But for me, this has always felt a little bit strained because I think a lot of my work nowadays is showing that well, you can have a, a subset of data points that the model is very uncertain about, but are also radically different from each other. So in machine learning, we'll often ascribe uh, high uncertainty to both noisy points as well as atypical points, as well as, you know, in the long tail of distribution, which most data sets in the world are, these rare attributes can be noisy or atypical. And why does this matter? It matters because how we treat those data points is also very different. So for noisy, we'll want to remove them. For atypical, we'll want to upweight them. But because we only use probabilistic scoring, we don't have a good way of treating uncertainty. Um, so I think there's some lessons there that I think are interesting. Like how do we um, learn for from fields which maybe have a, a better statistical grounding? That noisy versus atypical distinction is really interesting. And I do want to get back to this later when we discuss your research a little bit more in depth. But I do think one really key point you brought up there is the interpretability aspect. And for example, I as a human staring at these two data points can tell okay, this thing is just noisy versus atypical. But as you said, when you reduce things down to probabilities and just look at the numerics of it, it is a little bit uh, difficult to distinguish those things. So as you were mentioning earlier, you kind of glommed on to AI in a really exciting period. And part of that that you've identified yourself, I think, is the matching of hardware towards the AI systems that we're developing. And I think that in ML, as in science more generally, there's either an expectation or maybe a hope that the best ideas will generally win out on their own merit. And in your paper, The Hardware Lottery, I think you disclaim this notion, at least to some extent. Could you tell me about the main claims you were making in that paper? So I think that paper in many ways was saying that the best ideas don't win, or at least there's a very, there's a large delay in how we figure out what are the best ideas worth pursuing. And in that paper, uh, I, I posit uh, that in computer science in particular, the main driver of whether your idea wins or whether it loses is whether it's compatible with both software and hardware. And we, in fact, have seen this in history. So, you know, a lot of the switch to deep neural networks, uh, the people who worked on deep neural networks, frankly, were from, for, from the late um, uh, from the late 70s up until fairly recently were fairly ostracized. So there was essentially a belief that deep neural networks was not only, uh, uh, you know, not a viable, clearly viable direction, but also the wrong direction entirely. So it wasn't just that people who worked on them, it was thought that, oh, you're wasting your time, but it was more like you're working on something which has already been proved to not work. When in fact, a lot of it was the lack of compatibility with hardware. And uh, uh, we saw that with the repurposing of GPUs. But even now, we see that in many ways, what has compounded is that we now have a more and more heterogeneous landscape of hardware. So there's more and more options that you can choose. But it's also harder and harder to deploy to different types of hardware because the software layer matters more and more. Uh, it, we have many different uh, high-level libraries, but it's very hard to port one library to a different type of hardware. So I actually think it's getting 
trickier that if your if your idea doesn't work on a single type of hardware it's often hard to disentangle why um and this is something that will again i think only benefit from us having better feedback loops from our hardware and software right now the feedback loops given are typically fairly opaque and it's fairly hard to get signal about testing your idea on multiple types of hardware um, and it's fairly expensive to do so because if I have to test my my code on both GPUs and TPUs, I often spend a few days repurposing it in order to test it on both. Yeah, that's a that's a really key point I think you brought up there. Even though we've got this AI accelerator landscape coming up, I work at one of these companies. One thing you do see is just the difficulty of doing things out of the box. You really have to repurpose your code for every different hardware backend you're going to use. And often there's just not a lot of shared code between the applications you end up writing. I'm curious if you've heard of modular AI. No, talk to me about modular AI. Okay, because I think they're solving exactly this problem you laid out. Their goal is to essentially unify popular AI framework front ends and enhance the portability to a wide range of hardware backends and cloud environments. Now, I don't know a lot of the technical details here, but I think part of their inspiration comes from compiler design. So like LLVM, for example, which succeeded because I, th I think the, uh, the, the modular software architecture that they had and allowed people to develop a lot of different things out of it. But it does seem like there are at least some people who are focusing on this software problem that you talked about and the interoperability of my front end and PyTorch or TensorFlow. And as a data scientist, as a researcher, not having to think about modifying the code too much and being able to plug it into different hardware backends. So my hope is that maybe startups coming up like Modular might be able to help mitigate some of the issues you're talking about. Yeah, I think it's very welcome effort. So uh, the reason why this matters is that right now, as researchers, we're not uh, opinionated enough about how hardware should develop. And the reason we're not opinionated is that we don't have enough feedback loops about what's not going right. So we typically stick with our software stack <laughs> for all our projects. And so we never really have the, the counterfactual of could things be better if we switched. So that's why efforts like that, which uh, you know, I haven't heard of Modular AI, but I know there's a lot of architects as well thinking about, well, how do we create um, uh, essentially more versatile programming that can be portable? It's super important for this piece of getting more data points about how our algorithms work, where they work better, and where they don't work. Yeah, I know there have been attempts to at least create benchmarks for this sort of thing, right? So MLPerf, for instance, has become kind of the industry-wide benchmark for hardware and which models are performing better where. But I do get the sense that it is not a very good indicator of which hardware backends are really good across a variety of applications. And often one thing I noticed too, having worked inside one of these companies is, and I think other people have pointed this out publicly as well, you often see a lot of human-made decisions, for example, to improve the performance of a particular model, say ResNet 50, on a particular hardware backend. The moment you change anything about the model, that performance just drops by 50%. And so it's really saying, okay, if I have this very specific model with a particular batch size, a particular data set, and I fix all of these components, then I can achieve top of the line performance. But in no way does that translate to the real world use case. You might think that it does when you look at the benchmark. So I wonder, the one question going forward I think about is benchmarks like MLPerf seem to be one of the most valuable things that we can have just as signal going forward, the same way that we would like better benchmarks for deep neural networks and their capabilities. And so one thing I wonder about is how a benchmark like MLPerf could look better. One piece I read recently actually was poking at different ways. And I think that it suggested a sort of normalization. So one thing that I think these benchmarks don't take into account is if I'm claiming a 26 times uh, latency improvement or something over some old hardware, 
then that kind of has to be normalized for the number of nodes I'm using, things like the size of my transistors and all of that, which is kind of one approach. But I, I don't know if that really solves this issue of these overly specific tuning of hardware backends plus, you know, the specific overriding of compiler decisions and things like that. I'm, I'm curious if you've given that any thought and how how something like MLperf could be more indicative of the kinds of things we want. Yeah, 100%. This is fun. I love a grumpy brainstorm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like what you're describing is so true. So what you're talking about is really, if you ever look at MLperf and you look at the submissions, a lot of it is low-level optimization, like super specific. And that's largely because MLperf was frankly set up for hardware providers to kind of I mean, to have a clean comparison, but also to sell hardware. So <laughs> like, mm -hmm. let's, I think part of what you're seeing is that there's been a lot of optimization that maybe you wouldn't see in your typical everyday run on that hardware type. Um, and so what do you do to dissuade that? Uh, I think one thing is call attention to it. Like we just need to have a frank like discussion that if some of these low-level optimizations are not guaranteed to be present outside of that particular network benchmarking, then should we really be benchmarking it? So I, I think this gets to the idea of what are the variety of tasks that we benchmark on. So your comment about things being overly optimized like ResNet 50 and then falling off a cliff, that's very true. So often the roadmap of what operations should be prioritized for hardware is very much driven by what is the most common network that's being used. Some of this is understandable. Like there's, there's a notion of, well, what should we uh, prioritize first given limited engineering resources? But I think the tricky thing is, is when it's used to measure progress. And that's where, you know, you may have uh, created a very clean setup for one network, but it falls off a cliff in performance when you try and actually alter it to support different research ideas. I have been talking uh, very recently with uh, researchers that are working on efficiency. And a lot of what we have been talking about is similar to this theme of how do we actually benchmark efficiency in a clean way? Because the researchers who work on efficiency in, uh, in, on the algorithm side tend to favor hardware agnostic metrics like flops or number of parameters. This is uh, problematic in a different direction. So mm -hmm. we, you know, the problems we've talked about so far are, you know, measuring hardware performance in a very narrow set of confines that maybe it's not typical of the average workload. Uh, the issue with efficiency metrics is that we're hardware agnostic, but it's also not really capturing how progress on these metrics doesn't necessarily transfer to efficiency gains in practice. So even if you minimize flops, depending on where your operations are distributed within, a, uh, within hardware, whether it, the operation means that you're uh, moving data around, uh, that you're no longer in, uh, that you're moving between the CPU and the GPU or the CPU and the TPU, it, you could actually have efficiency losses. <laughs> you can make mm -hmm. it more uh, inefficient. So these are all things to think about when we talk about benchmarks. And I think the conversation is still very uh, immature there. Like, I don't think there's a high level of precision when it comes to some of these discussions. Mm. And to what you said, given that some of these benchmarks like MLPerf are also intended to help vendors sell their hardware, I can imagine that the incentives might not be totally aligned in the right direction to be conducive for an open discussion along those lines. Well, I was about to say, I, MLPerf was progress. So we have to... Mm -hmm that it's a standard way for us to benchmark different hardware on given certain set algorithms so you're varying the hardware and you're keeping the objective the same and so in some ways it is a testament to uh the uh, the you know measuring progress of all that we at least have mlperf i think now it's just having more maturity and how we benchmark and what we expect out of a benchmark but uh, we have to start somewhere, and MLPerth is a, is a more valuable starting point than most. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good way to frame it. Maybe I was looking at it a little bit more pessimistically, but I think that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think at maybe just a higher level, closing out this discussion on the hardware lottery, 
there's one aspect of it that we were just discussing about benchmarks and how those can lead us to a better place. But one other thing you pointed out is there is a bit of an AI accelerator landscape right now. But one other thing that I notice about it is it seems to be indexing pretty hard on the types of models that are growing popular today. And so one thing I think you've discussed in previous conversations about the hardware lottery is ideas like capsule nets, for instance, I think, that maybe didn't pan out because they didn't fit too well with existing architecture. And a lot of hardware vendors these days are making claims like, we can train GPT-2 really fast. And so this is really indexing on architectures like the transformer that have already become very popular on the machine learning side and exploit things like parallelism on GPUs. So one question I'd I'd have as far, if, if you've thought about this at all, is what other directions do you think are needed to mitigate some of these effects of the hardware lottery? Because in some ways it does seem like we have more expansiveness in terms of the hardware architectures available, but then the goals are becoming pretty condensed. Yeah, so I think it's probably important to first speak to why we see this over-indexing. So it still costs a lot of money to to produce hardware. It's still a multi-year time commitment. The expertise is very expensive. So typically you need a lot of smart people designing new hardware. Um, And all this means that design is still very risk adverse. So the cost of expanding your search landscape, it's it's very high, Uh, which means that perhaps rationally and over-indexing to very popular architectures is happening. Uh, The danger, as you point out, is that because we're moving towards uh, hardware, which is designed to accelerate very uh, common features in architectures. So if we look at the first round of accelerators, that you, these are really our matrix multipliers. But also if we look at new hardware designed around transformers, there's effort around memory and thinking about like how these networks have very different requirements. This is where it gets tricky because when you over-index more and more to particular features, it means that the ability to have uh, adaptability to new architectures is frankly lower unless the same feature is very common. And this is, I think, what you're alluding to as the, the compounding effect of maybe it's harder for new ideas to emerge. So the capsule networks, I think, is just one example of this. Like, I, I don't think I'm, I'm saying... Uh, uh, I wouldn't say, oh, capsule networks are the future, but it's an example of how painful it can be if you propose something which doesn't work well. In that case, it was uh, there was a squashing and routing operation, which essentially changes your whole profile from, you know, forward matrix multiplies to you you have uh, different interconnected pieces of your networks. Another example of this is in sparsity, a lot of the most promising research is dynamic uh, sparsity. So you're actually growing your network over time. Uh, And this is actually uh, really state of art in terms of the levels of compression that you can achieve, but completely incompatible with current hardware. So even though these are algorithmically some of the best, uh, if not the best compression algorithms, the ability for our uh, our graph to be restructuring as it grows just isn't compatible with our, how our hardware is really designed for matrices and known shapes. <laughs> so this is a wider issue, which is that the way that we have designed data storage and uh, network training really assumes a, a fixed, a known entity for the large part. And this is where I think it's exciting to be a hardware architect because these challenges about are about how to really deal with fluidity. Um, but for me, this is also related a lot to the notion of adaptive optimization. So right now, a lot of our emphasis is on static networks. You press go with your training and then you come back later. But I think that that is, it introduces a lot of inefficiency. For example, we see all data points the same amount of times. We have the same number of, Uh, backward forward passes. We have the same depth for all data points. For me, I think some of those interesting research directions are uh, in order to avoid going so, so big the way that we see now with our current preference for bigger is better, is that we adapt training as we go based on the signals that we learn from. Hardware is completely unsuitable for that right now. There's, uh, it's very difficult and very expensive to try and change your training as you go. 
I see. So with respect to adapting training as you go, is this with respect to things like hyperparameters, parts of the network architecture? What, what does that picture look like? So there I'm speaking specifically about uh, how do how does your network, can you grow a network? So can you start, mm-hmm. can you start with a very small network and end up with a much bigger one, but a much bigger sparse one? So changing the, the notion of what your connections are as you go. So for the same reasons that sparsity doesn't work, like unstructured sparsity is kind of painful in uh, hardware right now. A large part of it, because even when you have unstructured sparsity, you still have to store all the indices of where the sparsity occurs. Unless you use like sparsity that's got a very pre-configured uh, possible shape. So this is the same pain points when we try and grow dynamic networks. Um, how do you how do you store in our hardware where sparsity is without essentially doubling the memory and having to store indices for what what parts of the matrix are sparse? Yeah. One one thing I wanted to note before we move on on that front, I think I've seen at least a couple of papers discussing different ways in which you can introduce more structured sparsity, but retain some of the expressive power of unstructured sparsity. And so I, I suppose that is kind of an attempt to fit this idea of unstructured sparsity into existing hardware limitations, but it would be really great if it were easy, easier to just experiment with unstructured sparsity as it is, I suppose. Yeah, I, I agree. I think you're talking about a lot of work, uh, which is even how do you uh, explicitly design uh, hardware-supported sparsity? So there's been both at the algorithm level, can we structure along certain patterns that are more compatible, but also in NVIDIA's latest uh, architecture designs, there's been like two by four sparsity. The, uh, there's now ideas around one by four, four sparsity where you have some pattern of sparsity that you can tolerate and support and results in acceleration. So I think this is a really promising direction. Now that we're on the subject of sparsity, I do want to move up the stack a little bit to talk about its role in deep neural networks. And so one of the things that I think you've highlighted in your research is a set of trade-offs between these different virtues that we would like our deep neural networks to have. And these are features like interpretability, robustness, of course, sparsity or compression, and performance. And in some specific instances, instances in your research, but also at a high level, you've made the point that these virtues are intention. Could you tell me a little bit about why that tension exists and what it looks like? So I think the tension exists largely because how we've measured trade-off has really been in terms of a top-level performance, like an aggregate metric of some kind, and one property. <laughs> so for example, for efficiency, a lot of it has been top-run accuracy versus level of compression, or blue score versus level of compression. Uh, for uh, reliability, in terms of a lot of the work on uh, adversarial robustness, it's been in terms of you know, what's your top level performance? How how uh, robust are you to different adversarial examples? Which means that I think there's a whole Pareto frontier of trade-offs that hasn't been explored in terms of when you explicitly acknowledge that some trade-offs may incur, uh, may incur other uh, kind of um, uh, tensions with other properties. For example, if you compress, uh, a lot of what, what my work with colleagues has shown is that not only is it the explicit trade-off which is changing, which is your change with top-level performance, but it's also your trade-off with things like robustness and things like uh, disparate error on your rare artifacts. And so when we measure trade-offs with compression, we should also take into account these other, other objectives. What I will say is that it's not obvious that uh, this is always a loss. So for example, some of my recent work with colleagues has shown that if you take into account disparate error rate or worse class error, you can actually design objectives which improve overall performance in terms of the top line performance versus level of compression. And this is really interesting. It, It suggests that 
we just have underexplored some of these spaces because we framed it entirely in terms of one relationship and not taken into account um, multiple properties that we may care about. I think one of the things you're poking at is something that's been paid more attention to the ML community in general recently, which is this focus on top line metrics versus disaggregated metrics. And I think that maybe comes across not just in terms of how do we measure trade-offs, right, but in more broad strokes, like how we think about our algorithmic bias, for instance. Mm-hmm. And that's been, I think, a very, a very important topic recently, because it's nice, I suppose, when we try to make claims about the performance of our models and broadcast that publicly, we can just cite a single number. I have great top one accuracy on this particular benchmark. And I think that has maybe also fed a little bit into the the game of benchmarks that we see playing out in ML. But I think what you're what you're pointing to is a need for this evolution. And I think that a lot of people in the space and in different subfields of the space are starting to recognize this evolution of, on the one hand, benchmarks that are better at really keying in on what we want out of the systems we're developing, but then also from the side of the actual developers looking at the trade-offs in, in more disaggregated ways. Yeah, I mean, Daniel, you're kind of, uh, yeah, exactly, plus one. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting, like, to understand this, we also have to understand where, why we've cared for so long about top-line metrics. I think for a large part, it's because, you know, uh, for a long time, we weren't doing well at any of the top-line metrics. So <laughs> the quest was just to do better at the tasks that we had. But it also is reflected in how we optimize, like, you know, uh, empirical risk minimization is really minimization of the average error, right? So we, all our models, it's, uh, it's really reflected in how we even encode our preferences for like model quality. A lot of it is about average error. This is also really interesting because for me, it relates to why we are so uh, interested in scaling parameters because... Parameters are really hard to fight against because they they really uh, improve like our average top line metrics. But what we see is that it takes more and more parameters and more and more capacity to get gains in some of these areas. And I think in, from my perspective, that is the meat of the problem. Like if we look at what actually is uh, improving in performance over an entire data set when we uh, triple or quadruple the size of a model, it's actually only a small slice of the distribution that is uh, improving performance on, which means that we're spending a lot of capacity just to improve performance on a very small fraction of examples, but that's giving us our average lift. What this lays the groundwork for is that I think that there's several reasons to care about performance on subgroups and to think beyond top line metrics. But one of them, I think, is that uh, we are spending so much of our time modeling, both in terms of the length of training, in terms of the size of our models, learning a good representation for a fraction of the data set. And I suspect that the next uh, decade of research is actually going to be moving away from what I introduced at the beginning. You asked me the difference between economics and, you know, machine learning. And I said, one of the differences is that we delegate representation to the model. Mm -hmm. I actually think one of the crucial changes that's going to happen over the next decade is we should care more again about what parts of the distribution are challenging for the model and try and understand if we can accelerate that learning there. Instead of spending all this capacity on the average, maybe we can have things like adaptive capacity where we spend more time on certain examples um, or where we route examples according to difficulty. For me, these are very interesting directions. And again, it involves a shift from top line to caring more about what parts of the distribution matter for different reasons. Sure. Another thing you've said on this front is that maybe to be more explicit about the side we're working on, the approach to learning these mappings for a small subset of examples where our our model is spending an enormous amount of capacity basically forming a lookup table could be better solved in the data pipeline. And I think you alluded to a little bit of that, but could you expand on that thought a little bit? I, I actually love how you 
put that as a lookup table because I completely agree. It's almost like we're spending so much capacity just to memorize these examples. So it is like a lookup table. It's a very fragile way of learning, but um, mm -hmm. it can still be beneficial for generalization. So um, in terms of what I mean when I talk about how those examples should be treated, in most of our data sets, our modern day data sets uh, that are from the real world, so are not stratified manually, uh, we have a very pronounced long tail. So it means that even if we have class balance groups, so even in a supervised learning setting where normally we balance our classes, within that you're going to have a long tail of more rare features or more unique uh, representations of that class. For something like a large language corpus, this is kind of uh, everything is amplified because not only do you have this long, uh, long tail of like unusual features, but within that you have both a typical pattern. So maybe this is something out of domain. This is something where uh, it's like more rare type of corpus, um, but you also just have a lot of noise and a lot of junk. And often, I think one of the reasons we clearly need so much capacity, particularly for language, is that so many of our cruel data sets are just uh, really junk, they're noise, they're, they're really poor quality, which means that we're spending a lot of our capacity just regularizing the model by making it learn fairly redundant data that doesn't generalize. And so I think there, to, in terms of your question of like what happens next with this data, there's clearly different things we want to do with different sizes of data. So for junk, it would be really interesting if we could use early training signal to understand what is what is not great quality data. Like what is the model, clearly the rate of learning is very low on these examples and clean up the data set. Um, versus for atypical, clearly the rate of learning is also low, but maybe not as low as for junk, can we do something to upweight or to think differently about those examples? Sure. And if I were to maybe try to apply things that, you know, maybe as a student or a practitioner that I was already familiar with to this forward-looking vision you're saying here, some of the first things I'd come up with, I think, would be ideas like focal loss, for example, in RetinaNet, where we see, you know, the upweighting of difficult examples or maybe hard negative mining and contrastive learning. And I think that these are kind of cases where people have thought about how do we figure out which examples are pretty difficult for us. So in, you know, in that case of contrastive learning, where we have like this kind of anchor point, and we are really trying to look at things that our embeddings believe are really close to the anchor, and so are pretty difficult, although they maybe have different actual labels those might be a little bit helpful for us to coax the model to try to understand a little bit better if we think that they are indeed useful. But I think the key point that you you were thinking about there was that not all of these difficult points are going to be equally useful for us in the end, right? As you said, some of them may just be junk data. And so this is going to require us to clean up the data set. And so it sounds like there is a kind of framework that could be adopted here in terms of we have this notion already of what a difficult example looks like. And so the matter is, how do we also disaggregate what it means to be a difficult example? And then once we've determined what type of difficult example we're dealing with, how do we then act on that information going forward in order to get the best out of our model? Yeah, I think you're hitting on it precisely. So there's been a lot of really interesting work which has focused on these fields in isolation. So like uh, learning atypical examples, upweighting them, it's very common in, for example, bias mitigation. Can we upweight certain examples so that the class is more represented? Other uh, subfields have talked about, okay, if you have noise in a data set, how do you, uh, how do you uh, not derail your convergence if you have noisy examples? And typically this is simulated as like label shuffling, which is also interesting because what if you're in a setting which has no labels? Like, so we have very, we've kind of overfit to certain use cases, but often it's treated in separation. But to your point, I think the difficulty of that is that many of the techniques rely on scoring mechanisms, which many of these examples 
that are rare and noisy would be accorded similar scores. And so I think part of what I'm, I think is interesting, at least for, for me, when I think about um, exciting ideas, it's ideas that treat these examples in the same framework and really move away from probabilistic rankings and think about it in terms of reducible, irreducible errors. So for one, you know, for a typical, it is reducible error. If we had more examples, we would learn these type of examples. For junk, it's irreducible. So it's very stochastic mapping. Even if we added more examples, we wouldn't get any better at learning these data points. And uh, I think this is this is interesting. And I think this uh, really, it, it will also mean that a lot of these techniques that we see typically work on one data set, but don't translate to another. And I think that's largely because uh, they've made assumptions about the type of noise present or the type of atypical present, but uh, often that profile changes in a different data set. So you may have a different mix of percentages, um, but I'm going to stop there. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Like <laughs> that was, that was all really helpful elaboration. So with our last few minutes here, I'd love to discuss the new initiative you're leading up. So you recently left Google Brain to head up something new called Cohere for AI. So tell me about that. So Cohere for AI is really a lab that's focused on making progress on fundamental research. But for me, what's really important and the reason why uh, I was really excited to lead it, it's also about changing the spaces where research is done and who participates in research. So at the very beginning, you were talking about, you know, the volunteer run organization, all efforts that you're doing with both this podcast, as well as just having a group of people in industry and academia that are working on broadening how we communicate science. For me, that's so exciting because I think that we uh, are in like an era of scientific progress where we are making both a lot of progress, but also it's been very confined to like certain spaces and certain groups of people. So Cohere for AI, a lot of what I'm excited about is the ability to bring in both multi-institutional collaborations, but also people in regions of the world which typically have not participated as much in machine learning. So a lot of the programming in terms of like the community and how we hope to like do uh, educational training and mentorship is focused on that. So um, it's about providing opportunities for people to participate in research uh, that they may not necessarily have had, as well as saying, well, we have things like access to compute. How can we bridge the gap in terms of how people participate, especially now that we have this growing divide in terms of the models we use and the computational cost of the models? That access part is really important. As you were saying, it seems like a lot of the research today is focused around these models that require incredible amounts of compute. On the other side of bringing people in, what does what does that, that part of democratization of trying to get people who maybe traditionally just haven't been involved in ML research, what does, what does that look like to you? How do you hope to enable that? So I think I hope to be humble and start small. <laughs> I think that like my main goal for this year is to start a small fellowship and to kickstart our community. So the community piece is, is really just so that people can find other collaborators uh, so that we can help with some things like creating a space where people can meet each other and start to connect over research. The fellowship piece, uh, I'm going to, uh, we're going to be talking more about it in a few months, but for me, that's one of the core pieces. It's like, how do we actually create the support where people can uh, work on research and get their first experience on research? Uh, and my focus there is going to be on uh, how do we bring in researchers from all over the world who, who are super talented, but maybe don't have uh, access to, to compute. Sure. Yeah. I think, I think these fellowship initiatives are really great. And it seems like a lot of AI research labs have started their own. So I know that Google Brain has one. I think OpenAI has their own. There, there was a piece I read in TechCrunch about the um, introduction of Cohere for AI. And one thing in there I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on. They, they noted that the effort is likely to invite some skepticism due to corporate ties. And I'm sure that having worked at Google Brain as well, you're probably familiar with hearing these types of concerns. And I wonder how you think about those. 
I think that uh, I'm really proud of Cohere for doing this. So <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that the whole point is to be upfront about the support. And so for me, naturally, this is uh, something that we have to prove over time. And I think that uh, the truth is at the outset of any lab, I don't want to sit here and say uh, a bunch of things that, you know, we are this and this and this, like, I kind of want to show it because for me, like this, this goal of broadening access to uh, how we do research and who participates, it's beyond Cohere for AI. It's, it's something that I, I, I think is, I've been thinking about for a, a long time and I feel super proud of how ambitious the efforts are with Cohere for AI. It's one of the reasons why I was super excited to lead it, but I think it's on us to prove. I mean, this is uh, this is something that I think our programming will speak to, and I think it's authentic to us. But also, I am really proud that Cohere is backing something like Cohere for AI because it's really it's something that both in terms of the research landscape, the fact that there's a, a really big divide in who has access to research in some of these domains, like large language models, uh, as well as the fact that um, there's very few spaces where people who don't have a PhD or who may be in industry can participate in research. I think this is a huge contribution. Um, and so I'm proud of the ambition with what with what we are doing, uh, and uh, I think the rest, you know, is up for the. It's up to the community to see over time what we, how we contribute, and how we give back. Absolutely, I, I do agree with you about just offering that financial backing and being willing to support researchers with with compute and resources who want to go after these these different ideas is something really valuable, and so. I'm also very excited to see where Cohere for AI goes. Just wrapping up, if our listeners would like to learn more about you, your research, what you'll be doing at Cohere, where would you send them? Go to the Cohere for AI website, join our community, take a look for yourself. So when you go to the website, you can see how to apply to join the community. And uh, the community is super exciting so far. We've done a few socials and we've, um, uh, it's very hopping. <laughs> I don't know quite how to describe it otherwise, but I think that's the best way. Come, you know, if you're interested in research and want to actually see how our community research effort is going, join and uh, I, I think see for yourself. Fantastic. Well, I'll make sure to include a link to the Cohere for AI page in our episode notes. So listeners, if they're interested, can go ahead there and apply. And Sarah, thank you for being so generous with your time. It was wonderful having you on. Daniel, it was so lovely. And thank you for doing this podcast. Like it's so very clear. You put so much heart and thought into the podcast. So it's such a pleasure. I'm so delighted. Thank you for the kind invitation to come chat about both my work as well as career for AI. So I really, really appreciate it. Well, and likewise, thank you for everything you're doing as well, just to democratize ML research and, and for being here. That's a wrap for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Gradient Podcast. You can find our podcasts, newsletter, and other articles from thegradient.pub and our substack at thegradientpub.substack.com. If you liked the episode, please consider supporting us by sharing it with a friend or subscribing. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and feedback. See you in the next episode.